I'm pretty excited about the way that we're going to go through the message today. I've always said, I've said a lot of times, if you've been at Cornerstone for a while, you probably have heard this, that if I had my choice, I would be in your living room and we would just talk and we would just walk through the scriptures and you could ask questions and you could give your insights and I could hear yours uh, as well and profit from that. This is as close as I can get it while we are kind of sheltering in place. So I'm going to be bringing it back down. I'm not going to be really uh, embellishing a preacher's style. We're going to walk through Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. So even right now, can I invite you to open up your Bibles, get them open to Colossians chapter 1. I had somebody this last week that uh, told me that during the resurrection service, because I kept asking everybody to get their Bibles opened, he finally got off his couch and went and got his Bible. So Get your Bible. You are really, really going to need your Bible. I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, you're going to be swimming in this message because we're just going to discuss our way through chapter one, or at least the first half of it. So Colossians chapter one, and while you're getting that Bible and while you're opening it up to Colossians chapter one, let me tell you about a hunting story when I was 15 years old. This is one of the first major hunts that I had ever gone on. This is in upper, or actually central New York, and we're in Quaker Basin. Quaker Basin's about five miles away from DeRider, where my town was. And I was out with my best friend, Chris Marshall, and Jim Grimes, and their parents, and a few other men. So a whole bunch of us got up the opening day of New York hunting season and went up in the woods, way up in the hills, and we got up in those woods and we all separated pretty far apart and I got out in those woods and as the sun started to come up, I noticed that the fog had come in and it was the thickest fog that I had ever been in yet. And I'm going to tell you, it's still the thickest fog that I have ever been in. And I am in that fog and I'm thinking that when the sun comes up, it's probably going to burn it off, except it didn't burn off. It's 8 o'clock, it's 9 o'clock, it's 9.30, and I had no idea where I was. And I probably broke the number one rule. I started walking. And I started walking, and I was finding no familiar landmarks. This, these are not the woods that I grew up in. And I'm worrying, and I'm getting more scared, and I'm praying, God, I don't know how to get my way home. I don't know how to find my way home. I have no idea where I am. Would you please show me how to get home? And I'm walking in this fog, and all of a sudden, I see materializing out of that fog another hunter in blaze orange. And I go up to that hunter. Thankfully, I didn't get shot up in New York. You never know. I didn't get shot. And I walk up to him, and I say, I didn't even know this guy. And I said, listen, I don't know where I am, but I live in DeRider, New York. Can you help me find my way home? And he gave me very detailed instructions with landmarks to look for, and I was able to find my way home from those woods where I was thoroughly lost. Well, that's actually the sermon series, kind of a bit of a synopsis of what we're going to experience in the letter of Colossians. We're going to find the Apostle Paul helping us who tend to get stuck in this foggy, murky world. We get tempted 
We have all kinds of competing philosophies and false teachings. And Paul's going to help us find our way home. He's going to help us find maturity in Christ. So I want to invite you along with us on this thing called The Journey, this sermon series called The Journey. And we're going to basically introduce today and cover some pretty good real estate. And I think you're going to be more amazed with Jesus Christ when we are finished than you even are now at the beginning. So Colossians chapter 1, and I want to encourage you to look with me in verse 1. And we're going to kind of discuss our way through this. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, a lot of us probably skip that part of the, of the New Testament whenever we encounter it. It's kind of boring. But I think there's some parts that we probably want to understand and probably want to slow down just long enough, pause long enough to get our bearings on. And while we do that, and before we do that, let me kind of tell you the approach that we're going to take today in this message. And kids, if you are watching this and you're listening to this, this is super simple what I'm about to tell you. We're going to practice a Bible study skill. And it's very simple, and it's three words. It is observation, interpretation, and application. One person said it this way. It is the, um, the what, the so what, and the what now. So observation, interpretation, application. I'm going to help you with the interpretation. And as we go through these verses, I want you to learn. I want to encourage you. And this is how you should study the Bible anyways. Just begin to observe what's the low-hanging fruit. You know, you don't have to go very far inside the gospel tree to find it. It's right there. And the very moment you pluck on it, it just seems to fall off in your hands. That's the stuff that is very, very presentable. It's very easy to find. So let's start with observation, and let me kind of take you back to that verse 1 that we just talked about. Paul's the writer, and it's almost like if you've been to college and you've got your PhD or your DDS or your MA, it's almost like Paul, comma, and now his academic degree, an apostle of Christ Jesus, it's an OCJ, right? So Paul, OCJ, or ACJ, Apostle of Christ Jesus. He's an apostle. He's an ambassador. He's one sent with the authority of the one who's sending him. That's what an apostle is. So he's got the authority of Christ Jesus. And he has been sent by the will of God. This is pretty heavy accreditation. God chose him. God's the one that selected him to be an apostle. And he is being sent in the authority of Christ Jesus. And then he wants everybody at Colossae to know in this little house church, by the way, there's another guy with me. His name is Timothy. His name means honoring God. I kind of know that because that's my name as well. And he's an awesome younger brother in Christ. And we're coming at you. We're writing this letter together. And he's writing to the saints and to the faithful brothers of Christ at Colossae. Now, let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Because the word saints, now here's a really fun word. And I'm going to ask everybody who's watching this to say it. It's a Greek word, hagias. Can you say hagias? 
That's the word saints. And it means somebody that is holy or a people that are holy, set apart for God's purposes. So Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. You have been chosen by God. You've been set apart for him, his holiness, for his, uh, for his purposes, rather. He has made you holy. And Paul is writing this letter to this church that's in the city of Colossae. Now, what do you know about Colossae? I'll give you a little bit of information today. I think we're going to keep dripping this throughout the series into you because it's pretty fascinating. It's in the city is in this Lycus River Valley in a region of the Roman Empire called Asia Minor. Asia Minor, think Ephesus or, you know, the city of Ephesus. Think uh, all those seven churches, by the way, in Revelation chapter two and three and four. Those are all churches that are in Asia Minor. And Colossae is the smaller of the city next to Laodicea and Heropolis, or Hierapolis. So the three of them are cities, and they're right next to each other. Laodicea is about 10 miles from Colossae. And it's really interesting because this city, uh, centuries before, had a lot of Jewish people transplanted from Babylon into it. So there's a lot of Jewish people in this city. At least one person said 50,000. I kind of think that number's a little high. I don't know, but there's a lot of Jewish people there. And Paul's writing this church at Colossae, and he says to them, grace to you. That is, grace means God's willing, loving power to remove your sin. Grace to you and peace from God your Father. And let me just really tell you this. You cannot have peace without grace. If God has not removed your sins through Christ, then there's no ability to be at peace with God, joined to God, at, in fellowship with God, because sin separates us from God. So Paul uses this greeting in so many of his books, and he never reverses that. He never says, peace to you and grace. It's always grace to you and peace. Now, I'm going to teach you a little bit of a technique to be careful of when you're studying the Bible. And let me use an illustration. Denise and I, every once in a while, we go shopping together for food, and she really does not like me going with her. And if I do go, she tries to make sure I eat something before I go. Because if I go to a grocery store hungry, everything looks good. And I am putting thing after thing, item after item into the grocery cart, and she'll pick it up and go, what are you doing? And she'll put it back on the shelf. And if I'm really hungry, the two items that are always going in there are sugar and salt. And so Denise is really good at making sure that I don't put into the cart what shouldn't be put into the cart. Now, when you study the Bible, and when I study the Bible, it's really easy to start looking at the Bible and going and asking ourselves, what does this mean to me? And I'm going to tell you that's a really bad way. You don't want to study the Bible that way. You want to observe. Instead of asking, what does this verse or this passage mean to me? You just want to simply ask, 
what is the verse and the passage saying? That's observation. You don't want to breathe into it. You don't want to put into the cart of the Bible what you're craving or what you want it to say. You know, that filter that everything goes through and we kind of change things. Have you ever told your wife or your mother or your sister that, you know, you're really pretty? And then they say, oh, not really. Uh, Thank you, though, but I don't really feel very pretty. Well, they have a filter and it's kind of changing your message. Well, we tend to do that. The Word of God hits this filter and we change it to be kind of selfish. So what does it mean to me is not really the question you want to ask. It is really simply, what is the verse saying? So here we go on our journey. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. I gave you the greeting. By the way, did you notice that when you write a letter or you send an email, you put your name and your accreditation and your title at the end of that email, usually your name at the end of the letter. In ancient letter writing, they didn't do that. They put it all at the beginning. So they did it a little bit differently. We looked at the greeting. Now we're going to find a few things that I think would be really good for us to observe. Number one, and I want to ask you this question. Who cares for you spiritually? Do you have anybody in your life that really cares how you're doing with the Lord in your faith? Paul's going to express this. Now let's read it together, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now look at your Bibles for a moment because verses 3 through 8, you might have a period in there. But in the original writing, in the Greek manuscripts, there was no period. This is a long, long sentence from verse 3 to 8. Paul would drive any English teacher nuts. He had a lot of run-on sentences. So he's writing to this church at Colossae, and he's expressing that we really care for you. Now here's the amazing thing. Paul has never met them. They've never met Paul. He's going to tell you that in the beginning of the chapter, uh, chapter 2, where he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. They've never met Paul. He's in Rome. He's in prison. But a guy named Epaphras, who started the church, made the journey to Paul, and he told Paul all about what's happening and all the challenges back in in Colossae. So Paul writes this letter to this church, and he's saying, listen, we really care about you. Now again, I want to ask you, do you have anybody in your life? Now I really want you to be honest with this. I mean, I'm not there to really drum this into you, so you can be as honest as you want. Do you have anybody in your life that really cares about your Christian walk. Paul's showing us that if we're going to make it on this journey, if we're going to get out of the fog, if we're going to find our way home, we need somebody that cares enough to help us get to where we need to go. And he goes on a little bit more, and he goes, uh, not only this hope laid up for you, uh, in the word of, uh, but then he goes, uh, laid up for, for you in heaven, Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Now let's talk about that a little bit. The gospel 
means good news. So that's what the word means. But it means a little bit more than that. That was used in classical Greek for good news that your army was victorious. Good news that your army was victorious. They would send back to the city the gospel. The good news, our army won. So Paul's using this incredible word. And he's telling them that we've got truth And that truth is the gospel, and that gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is victorious. He has victory over death. He has victory over Satan. He has victory over the world. He has victory over your flesh. All of that through the cross. All of that because he came out of that grave. And because of that, and because Colossians is going to say over and over and over, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, the victory that Jesus has, Christian, is the victory that you have and that I have. This is the great beauty of the book of Colossians. It's going to tell us how amazing Jesus is. And because he's so amazing, we who are in him are recipients of his blessings. So we've got Paul writing along with Timothy to this little house church whom he has never met. And he's expressing to them how much he cares Now go back to verse 3 one more time if you would. We always thank God the Father when we pray for you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, a little little insight. Did you notice in uh, verse 1 that he says an apostle of Christ Jesus? And then in verse 3, he switches the order to Jesus Christ. And then again, right after that, back to Christ Jesus. What's going on? Why does Paul keep going, Jesus Christ, then Christ Jesus? Well, first of all, the word Jesus, the name Jesus means God saves. And Christ is not the last name of Jesus. It's a title. It's a title for the Messiah, the anointed one. So when Paul uses Christ Jesus, he's emphasizing his deity. He's the son of God. When he uses Jesus Christ, he's emphasizing his humanity. He's the son of man. So you want to hold on to that. You want to remember that because all through this book, you're going to keep seeing these and they bounce back and forth and there's a reason for it. Now he says, we're praying for you. Every time we think of you, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Well, what's he actually praying? And this leads me to my second question. Do you have anybody in your life that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt is constantly praying for you? Can you actually answer that? Yes. I mean, you know, you know, and you know they are praying for you. Now, it doesn't matter if you're eight years old or 80 years old. Do you have anybody in your life that you know is praying for you? And are they praying for you the way that Paul was praying for this church? Now, I want you to skip down a little bit, and I want you to get to verse 9, because I'm going to show you how Paul was praying for this church. And he prayed like this, verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Listen, if you ever want to pray for me, and if you ever really want me to pray for you, here's how I would love for you to pray for me, and here's how I want to be praying for you. God, fill me with the knowledge of your will, and give me spiritual wisdom, and give me understanding. And you might want to really ask, well, what, what actually is wisdom? I mean, if we're going to pray, we're going to ask for that. We should probably know what it is. Well, you actually see a working definition in action in verse 10. He goes on in his prayer. Here's what wisdom is. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That's what wisdom is. It's the power to take knowledge and understanding and apply it in in a life that is pleasing to God. It is skillful living. So Paul's praying this way for the church at Colossians. Is anybody praying this way for you? That you would know the Bible, that you would know Jesus, and that that knowledge would actually be translated in the way that you live, in the way that you walk, in a manner worthy, pleasing rather, to God. That's how we should be praying for each other. And it goes on in verse 10 that we would bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And may we be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. I love that word power and that word might. Did you see that in verse 11? Can you look at that for a moment? You want to know something cool about power? It's the Greek word that gives us dynamite. It's internal, explosive power, but it's not because we created it, because the word might means the very power of God that is exercised on your behalf. So you've got all the power of God, Christian, that God is exercising inside your heart, and it is exploding with wisdom. It's exploding with understanding, with knowledge that you would know God's will. God doesn't want to hide his will from you. Do you realize that, Christian? He does not want to hide his will from you. He wants to reveal it. He wants you to know it. And he has the power, go back to my opening illustration, of blowing that fog away so that you know exactly how to live. That's the power of God. Blow that fog away and show you and give you the knowledge of his will. So I've asked you, do you have anybody in your life that really cares for you? And then I've asked you, do you have anybody in your life that is praying specifically that you would find maturity? But I'm going to ask you another question. Do you have anybody in your life, and I really want you to think on this, that is speaking biblical truth into your heart? Do you have anybody that's speaking biblical truth into your heart? That's a really important question. Now, I want to tell you some background of what's going on in this little church. It just sprang up, just a few years before this, this false teaching called Gnosticism. Gnosticism is still around, actually. It's in a lot of our movies. It's in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's in the, um, a lot of the false religions that are out there. 
It's in the depths, in the interior philosophy of yoga. It's in transcendental meditation. It's in mindfulness. And it's definitely in humanness, or humanism, rather. Humanism is the oldest philosophy on the face of the earth. It's the oldest false teaching on our planet. It actually started in Genesis chapter 3. Do you remember the serpent who was Satan? And he's in this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he tempts Eve to eat the fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit it was, but God had forbidden them from eating this fruit. He said, don't eat it. And the devil tempted Eve, and he said this to Eve, don't you know that God knows that the day that you eat this fruit, your eyes are going to be open, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That humanism... That philosophy that we can be like God, that we have within us the ability to be gods, to excel, to transcend, and break free of the bonds of our limitation. That's what forms Gnosticism. Gnosticism, very briefly, hopefully, is the false teaching that there is a supreme being called the Father God. And that supreme being had all sorts of emanations. In other words, he created all kinds of eons, all kinds of gods. And one of those gods that the supreme God, Father God, created was wisdom, Sophia. Sophia thought that she would then create a god. And so she tried to create a god, and she did, according to Gnosticism, This is the God named Jehovah. This is the God Yahweh. This is the God of the Old Testament that Sophia created. And this God was evil. This God was jealous. This God created all of the earth and all of the universe, but he messed up. He botched the creation, and everything was filled with pain. Everything was filled with ignorance. Everything was filled with desolation, including human beings that this God created. Now, I'm telling you what Gnosticism is, in case you're just tuning in. This is not the biblical story. This is the false teaching that is starting to come into the church. But every human being that was created by this false God, he accidentally put into that that human a spark, a spark of the supreme Father God. The Gnostics teach that that supreme God, in order to fix the corruption that the Old Testament God did, sent to earth another God. His name is the Christ. And the job of the Christ was to teach, was to give knowledge. Gnosis, Gnosticism, means to know. I think you know this, right? Agnostic. If you ever find somebody that is agnostic, they are 
they don't know if God exists. They're not sure if God exists. Well, Jesus, according to Gnosticism, came to give knowledge. He's not the redeemer God, Jesus. He's the revealer God. And Gnosticism taught that there are select few that Jesus, with his knowledge, will blow on that spark and ignite a flame in that person, and they will become a God, and they will, be, they will transcend their human bounds and limitations that the Creator God put on them. So if you want freedom, if you want to grow, then you've got to then learn from the teachings of the Gnostics. Because they alone hold the key for that spark to be ignited into a flame and for you to become a god. Now they had a few more. They had actually a lot more teaching. I'm just going to tell you one more. It fused with Judaism, the religion of the Jews. So they began to teach that since everything in creation, all matter, even our flesh, is corrupt and it's evil then you've got to practice all these disciplines if you're going to be free, if you're going to become a god. So don't touch, don't taste, don't drink. You've got to practice these uh, disciplines. You've got to observe these festivals. And it turned into legalism. And, Ep and Epaphras goes to Paul in Rome and says, Paul, you're not going to believe it, but here comes a false teaching, and the church is starting to believe it. What do I do? And Paul said, you know what? Let me teach you the gospel, and I'm going to write a letter that a guy named Tychicus is going to deliver to the church at Colossae. And then they're going to give it to Laodicea, and they're going to give it all around to all these other churches, and they're going to see that Christ is not a created being that came to reveal. He is the Son of God who came to redeem. See, he's teaching truth into this church. They're getting stuck. It is murky. It is foggy because false teaching is coming into the church. And so he's teaching what the gospel, the good news of the victory of Christ really is. And he's going to dig deep into the hearts of this church and dig deep into heart, our hearts as well. Now I want to read to you a little bit of that teaching. Can we do that? Let's look at it really quickly. Look at verse 12, and this is going to get, verse 13, and this is going to get really ramped up next week. He says this, God has delivered you, oh, let's go back a little bit to verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, God, who has qualified, enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's a really powerful word, delivered. Here's what it means. You ready? This is beautiful. And parents, you're going to like this. It means that he has separated his people and put them behind him. Think of being out with your children, your young children, when somebody that seems to be a threat comes near you and you get between that threat and your little children, and you put your children behind you. That's what this word means, that God has delivered us. He has taken us out of the domain that the devil, the prince of the air, rules, the domain of darkness. He's plucked us out of that, 
And he's put us into the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. And he has hidden us behind his back to protect us. That's pretty powerful. I want to tell you what one of my favorite theologians once taught in a conference that I attended. He taught that when you read the book of Colossians, you're going to constantly be reading that you are in Christ, that you are with Christ, that he is in you and he is with you. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Take a pencil and put it in your Bible and then close that Bible over it. And that pencil represents you, Christian, and the Bible represents Christ, and he comes around you. And the only way the devil could ever get to you is to somehow find his way through Christ. And there is no way the devil can. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's the truth. So if you've got somebody that you are speaking truth into. And they're wondering, like I had somebody a few weeks ago, I'm wondering if I've lost my salvation. I know that I was a Christian, but now I'm wondering if somehow I've lost that. I don't have the assurance anymore. Well, you would take them back to the hope Paul writes the Colossians, laid up for you in heaven. That hope is laid up in heaven. You don't even have, you don't have access to that. The devil doesn't have access to that. That's in a security vault in heaven. And the only one that could get there is Jesus. Your salvation is sure. It is a promise. It is a definite. And so is your inheritance that is in the saints in the light. That inheritance is definitely yours. So Paul is teaching truth. Do you have anybody teaching truth to you? He goes on in verse 12. He's not only delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption. I love that word redemption. It means to be bought back. It was a word they used for those who were captured by an enemy at war. I mean, listen, the, the, the goal of warfare was not to kill everybody. War was a cash cow. You tried to capture alive as many of the enemy as you could because then you send a letter to their family, to their loved ones, and you say, listen, if you want them back, here's how much you've got to pay. Here's the ransom price. And if the family really wants them back, then they send the ransom price and that family, that wife, that father becomes the redeemer. They redeemed their loved one who was caught up in the grip of the enemy. Well, Jesus has done that for us. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Christ has been victorious. He has redeemed us. He paid the ransom price on the cross with his own life. He paid that and became our redeemer. And we are in his kingdom. We are in his family. See, this is truth. And he ends with, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word forgiveness means to be put away. It means to send away. Isn't that awesome when the Bible says that God forgives us and he forgets our sins, meaning he sends them as far as the east is to the west. He sends them away from him. This is why they put their 
their sins onto that scapegoat on the day of atonement and then let that goat free in the wilderness. It was to be sent away their sins so that they could be forgiven. So Christian, here's the truth. The very moment, the very day that you put your faith, your belief in Jesus, he took all of your sins, past, present, and future. He put them onto the crucified Jesus and he sent them away from you. You will never see them come back again. He will never hold them to you again. You will never be accountable to them again. That's the power of our redemption. That's the love of our Redeemer. That's the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, I've taken you through a lot, and we're almost done. So I've asked you, do you have anybody in your life that really cares for you? Do you have anybody in your life that really, really prays for you? And do you truly have anybody in your life that's speaking truth into your life? Now, let me switch that for a moment. Is there anybody in your life that you care for and that you are praying for their maturity in Christ and that you are helping them on the journey in this murky, foggy world. You're helping them find maturity in Christ by speaking truth into them. Do you have anybody that you're doing that for? You know, some of you don't really mind this time of social distancing. You kind of like church being home on your recliner. I don't know what you're wearing. I don't even want to know what you're wearing or not wearing. I mean, you're really enjoying this and and sheltering in place, it's not that big of a deal. But I want to tell you, in the racing world and in the motorcycling world, uh, we always had a little bit of a saying that there is no replacement for displacement. And that really means that if you want to go faster, if you want more power, you got to get a bigger motor. Well, in the church world, you're going to alter that a little bit. I want to say it this way. There is no replacement for engagement. We must engage with the word of God. It is the gospel, the good news of the victory of Christ. And we must engage with one another. There's no replacement for engagement. And if you live a solitary life, I'm going to make a promise to you. And this is not a good promise. You will not find maturity in your spiritual walk. You cannot. It is not the way that God has designed it. You must engage. People must be praying for you, must be speaking truth into you and to me, and I must be speaking, and you must be speaking truth into others and praying for them as well. I introduce you in verse 7 to a guy named Epaphras. He actually started this church He went from Colossae to Laodicea to Hierapolis to encourage those house churches. And Paul is sending Epaphras back to speak truth to this church. You know, the shift in our church culture at Cornerstone is this. We are pressing toward becoming a church that engages with one another, that makes disciples with one another. My hope is that within a year or two or three, if you're not being engaged with other Christians in our church, if you're not having somebody that cares enough for you to really pray for you without ceasing and to speak truth into you, and if you're not doing that for somebody else, you're going to probably feel like an outsider in this church. 
See, we're shifting the culture, meaning we're shifting the way that we do things around here. The mission is that we make disciples of all people. And we teach them and we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there are temptations of the world. There are false teachings. There are competing philosophies that are going to try to put a fog around us, a murkiness. And we're going to go back to the word of God, the truth of the gospel. And we're going to get our directions to clear air, how to find our way home. I hope you'll be part of this journey I'm really looking forward to this. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at just how supremely preeminent Jesus Christ really is. And I hope and I expect and I, and I anticipate that the way you think of Jesus when this journey is done, this sermon series is done, it's going to be even greater than the way you think of him now. Would you pray with me and let's ask God to do just that. Let's pray and bow your heads if you would with me now. Father, we love Jesus. We want to love him more. And Father, we want to say right now that there is fog. There is murkiness. There are all kinds of humanistic competing dogmas and philosophies. And Lord, we need your help to be able to get back home. We need your help to be able to make it to heaven mature. And Lord, you help us on the journey by sending people that really care for us and that will pray unceasingly for us and will speak truth to us. And that truth is always going to be the gospel, the good news that our Christ, our Lord, our Jesus has been victorious. On that cross, he overcame death. On that cross, he defeated the devil. On that cross, he defeated the world and he defeated our flesh. And in that resurrection, when he came back out of that grave, he was the first fruits of many. We've got new life and we've got hope. And we've been brought out of the kingdom of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son where there is light. And we've got a God who has an inheritance for us. And that is a hope laid up for us in heaven that nobody could take away. Because he's our redeemer. He bought us out of the grip of the enemy. He paid the price with his own life. And he has forgiven our sins. He has sent them far, far away from us. And they will never come back to our blame again. For there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. That's our Jesus. That's our Lord. That's our King of all kings. That's our Redeemer. That's our Savior. And we give praise to him. And we ask for your help on this journey through Colossians. Let us be amazed by your son. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, that we say amen. Amen. Well, God bless church. We're going to go back into some singing. And I hope this is echoing in your heart and resonating in you all week. Get some advance notice. Read the rest of chapter one before next weekend. And we'll go back through that again. And it's going to be fun. God bless.